I, I, I have to admit that I am very biased about this subject, um, but I'd be really surprised if some of the information that's presented today isn't some of the most exciting information that you've heard about in a long time. Um, my, my, I realize we all get graded, and you know, um, I can't go to the gas station without getting a survey. How was your experience pumping your own gas, kind of thing, you know? But, but my, my parts of the discussion, the beginning and at the end, are the least interesting and the most boring. Um, so I just want you to know that. Okay. <laughs> so these are my disclosures, um, and Dr. Rice has nothing to disclose. Um, he is owner of Integrated Tissue Dynamics, um, and Dr. Albrecht, um, who I affectionately refer to as Frank and Phil, um, ha is also an owner of Integrated Tissue Dynamics and otherwise has nothing else to, to, to uh, disclose. These are our learning objectives. So uh, we will review the importance of skin as a functional organ for neural and vascular system interaction. We're going to recognize the importance of vascular innovation within the skin and pathologies that are associated with altered innovation. And I know you don't, how could this be fasting? Just wait, okay? Um, now, we're also going to recognize the importance of epidermal innervation and pathologies associated with keratinocyte signaling. I want everyone to do an exercise today, right now, and expose your skin, floss, you know, get rid of some of your keratinocytes, all right? Those are one, those, I don't know if you'll disagree, guys, but those are, your keratinocytes are probably much more important than you ever thought. And if you leave here today, you'll know that. They are not inert, dead, ugh, who cares about themselves. They're unbelievably dynamic. We will present data as a group today that will show how treatment changes what they do, which is really kind of mind-blowing, in my opinion. And then the, well, another objective, obviously, is to be able to use the information in the other objectives to identify potentially useful topical drug therapies. And so maybe make more sense of what we already have available and maybe do better going forward. So I'm going to introduce the topic. Dr. Rice is going to talk about um, work in cutaneous vascular innervation. Dr. Albrecht um, is going to talk about pathologies associated with the innervation of the epithelial, ep the epidermal region and keratinocytes, and then I'm going to come back and close up with what we, ha what we can do today and where we hope to go in the future. So why does skin matter? It matters because the evaluation of the skin may lead to improved diagnosis of various pain conditions. Many of you may, and, may, may I, and I'm sure we'll touch upon this in some detail, know that Fibromyalgia, which is a very common, most common chronic widespread condition. There'll be a session that I'll be doing this week with uh, Dan Claw, who's made tremendous contributions to this field. Um, about, if you look at all the studies together, 50% of people who've been diagnosed with fibromyalgia approximately have a different documented condition based upon skin biopsies. And our own work has shown pathologies in people labeled as having fibromyalgia within the skin of those affected individuals. So that's why, it, that's just a tip of the iceberg about why it's important. Um, the evaluation of the skin may lead to improved treatment by identifying subtypes of various pain conditions or by, you, by serving as a biomarker that allows for more personalized treatment of various painful conditions. 
So of interest to many of you in this audience may be that this group, to my right, I had nothing to do with it except knowing them, were the, among the first, they were in collaboration with another group of scientists at the University of Arizona, the first people to ever document that your keratinocytes express beta endorphin. In other words, we have opioid activity within these cells. Pretty cool. Well, wouldn't it be really cool if we could use that information, because you may even comment upon it, um, we could use that information to figure out who's the best candidate for an opioid. Maybe some of us are programmed not to be able to be very responsive. Wouldn't that be better if, like, you know, you don't get, just get an antibiotic when you go to, the, when, when you go to someone with, with strep throat. You get a culture. You get a list of antibiotics that may be helpful, those that are going to be resistant, and you have guidance. So maybe we can move pain management into a more truly personalized approach. But these are the people who first discovered that. Um, and the skin itself can certainly be the site of treatment for uh, various chronic pain conditions through therapy. So we'll, we'll talk about that as well. A couple of really, many people of you may, here may know this already. And if you do, fine. But I still hear people using the wrong, oops, the wrong terminology. When the, the skin can be a vehicle for the drug or for a substance to move through it into the bloodstream, which is transdermal. That's not topical. Topical means that the tissue, this peripheral tissue activity, that's an example of a, a topical therapy known as the lidocaine patch and the fentanyl patch on the right-hand side, which is transdermal. The problem that we'll come back to later is that people who are selling, and if there are any people here who own these labs and companies in this audience, don't take it personally, but when you're selling compound, if you are selling compounded therapies that many pain providers use, you know, it's a mixture with 4% this and 3% that and 2% that, I would challenge people who make those creams to tell me where is it going? Is it going only into the skin or is it going, how much of that is getting into the bloodstream? And so they're not truly topical therapies. That doesn't mean they're not effective, so don't take it that way, but a truly topical approach would mean that there are insignificant serum drug levels and systemic side effects are unlikely. Transdermal, you're using the skin as a vehicle to get the medicine into the bloodstream, so side effects can happen. And we don't know with some of the products that we use today where they're going. So again, topical agent within the skin. It's in contrast to transdermal oral parental medications. Again, not only are lack of systemic side effects important, but lack of diminished drug-drug interactions. And of course, the mechanism of a topical agent is going to be unique to the drug. So a topical anesthetic is going to work through sodium channels. A topical NSAID is going to work in a different way. I'm now going to turn the program over to my colleague. Okay, thank you. And it's not true, uh, Dr. Argoff played a critical role in many of our studies in the but not that one. patient evaluations <laughs> and recruitment that made the, the uh, cohorts of patients uh, ideal for the types of work we've been doing. As mentioned, uh, Dr. Albrecht and I have founded a biotech uh, company built off of years of experience in developmental biology, normal somatosensory <clears throat> systems biology, and analyzing skin biopsies in a number of settings, human as well as a lot of different animal models. And we work with everybody. Two more pertinent review articles that kind of give an overview of many of the 
things that will be discussed are here, as well as other uh, elements relative to the topicals. Um, let me put that on start. Um, as we know, in a very good session that just occurred by Dr. Glick, a beautiful overview of, uh, of mechanisms in uh, pain uh, pathologies, uh, acute pain we recognize is necessary and beneficial and very treatable. The problem is chronic pain where we don't have an appropriate, it's maladaptive, it's not providing benefit, we often don't know I have no clue of the origin of it, and worse, we have a great deal of difficulty trying to treat it. And what we're looking at here when we're dealing with pain systems was we cover the range all the way from the skin, where we'll actually talk about cells of the skin itself, such as keratinocytes, as being active in normal sensory transduction, as well as potential pain mechanisms and pain pathologies, right through the primary afferents, all the way into the central connectivity leading up to the, to the central centers. Now, yesterday at um, a session, uh, Dr. Paola did a nice job talking about central sensitization mechanisms. That will not be the emphasis of this talk today. We know that there is abnormal activity over a wide number of cortical sites that have been associated with a number of chronic pain conditions. That's true. The question is always, what is the driver, the initiator and the driver of that? And while it's not necessarily originating from the periphery, I think more and more we're getting evidence of things that have gone wrong that are going to be feeding erroneous input into the system, which may be part of what is, initiates and sustains what we've been calling central sensitization. <clears throat> okay. As you know, more than me as a basic scientist and trying to treat patients, is it's a huge challenge because this is just the tip of the iceberg short listing of a number of chronic pain conditions that all have different types of etiologies to them too. And among that, there's a variety of pain uh, uh, perceptions that their patient will express that can come in mixed combinations. And so we're dealing with a very complex problem. And what we now know is a much more multi-molecular problem than we once assumed, okay? Um, a key part in how we've traditionally approached treating pain was often making the assumption that chronic pain was an extension of acute pain mechanisms. And so in theory, what should work when we're dealing with an acute pain situation and we try to apply that then over chronic pain, why isn't that working? We're talking about a different kind of animal here, okay? And uh, <clears throat> the places where we've viewed the pain problem and where we target uh, strategies to treat it, Okay, one are the pickup fibers themselves, the transducers, and they come in several varieties physiologically, uh, referred to as nociceptors. We know that physiologically some are more driven by thermal stimuli, some are more driven by mechanical, some, um, <clears throat> okay, by uh, um, <clears throat> tissue damage, um, a whole host of things. We've fine-grained, come up with different categories of them. And what we try to do is identify particular molecular properties 
that would be activating these, and that's often the place where we have target molecules that are um, uh, identified to develop potential therapeutics. Okay, then we come to the um, uh, passage of the information on into the central nervous system. We have these different pathways that have identified going up to cortical centers, and then various points of regulation. So we know there are descending modulators involved in this system, and that's largely where the opioids are thought to come into play. And so typically we would aim at identified targets and try to work a strategy uh, against a molecular property uh, that would be leading to excessive activity interpreted as pain. So the focus here is going to be on the peripheral innervation and the potential mechanisms that may be setting up excessive activity in the peripheral nerve fibers, which is then fed in driving the pain centers. Okay, and it's long been known that there are a number of products that are released as a result of tissue injury and have been targets of different acute pain medications. It's more complex than that, which was nicely covered this morning. So we've now identified things like the TRIP-V1 receptor, which is the receptor for capsaicin and a whole family of related molecules, of which we have uh, indicators that some of these small fibers, C and A delta fibers, that are typically implicated in pain, express these molecular properties. These have been implicated in potential pain mechanisms and are thus targets of potential therapeutics. Okay, <clears throat> our approach is to look at the skin itself and we take a globalist view of chronic pain conditions. We look across all types of disease conditions for potential biomarkers and potential pathologies out in the periphery that have been previously unidentified. And we're not the only group. There are others, Bill Kennedy pioneered much of this work, of starting to use skin biopsies for pain research. Now, there's a little bit of resistance to going ahead and doing that with a person with pain, forgetting the fact that dermatologists have been routinely punching biopsies for over 100 years and chronic disease conditions, dermatological conditions, that also manifest pain. It's a standard tool in dermatology. The fact that it's fairly new in neurology, okay, has encountered a little bit of reluctance. But on the other hand, it's also been underutilized as what it can show us. <clears throat> and what we do when we work with a piece of skin in a biopsy is that we, it is a gold mine of information and I will get to some properties and way we think of, of the periphery and the totality of how it works and plays into potential pain mechanisms, okay? But the key, and uh, many of you will have run into the term small fiber neuropathy, and you're familiar that places have been doing punch biopsies. There are, there are um, uh, pathology labs that will analyze them and do nerve fiber counts, okay? and uh, detect whether there are changes in the presence of the small fibers in the skin. Now, particularly, the changes are aimed at changes in nerve fibers that are terminating out in the epidermis, which is the common site where we would believe that 
stimuli impacting the skin are transduced such that they would lead to acute pain, but also could be hyperactive related to chronic pain, okay? And so you'll go in and there are biomarkers that you can use shown here that actually show the nerve fibers out in the epidermis from Bill Kennedy. And so each of these little green threads is the tip of mostly C fibers and some A delta fibers implicated in pain mechanisms. And a panneuronal enzyme picked these fibers up and identified them because about 20 years ago, okay, the line was there were no fibers in the epidermis. We now know it's one of the most richly innervated tissues in the body, okay? We extend this by taking the biopsy and serially sectioning it, spreading alternating sections over a battery of slides that allow us to take advantage of looking at potential other mechanisms that are involved in chronic pain and other molecules. So for example, we can take a look at uh, TRIP-V1 expression by immunochemistry and combining that with other immunomarkers for CGRP, a molecule involved in inflammatory pain, and a powerful vasodilator. And we can develop a profile of the total skin looking at the multi-molecular properties of the, of the skin, all right? And it's important, and we're beginning to realize that we're dealing with a multi-molecular disease process. Every small fiber nerve small fiber is multi-molecular. In their way, they are all polymodal, all right? We're constrained by the physiology approaches that we have to define them, but they're obviously doing integrating things much more complex than we ever appreciated previously. And so by doing this, we build up a profile of what the total innervation of the skin looks like. And this here is an example of a uh, piece of skin that would be from the digit of a human. Uh, some of this is done in rhesus monkey. And what you need to imagine is this is the small fiber systems <clears throat> affiliated with the epidermis, C fibers and A delta fibers. And in here we have different fiber subtypes that we've tagged with markers, whether they have the receptor for capsaicin, whether they have CGRP, this is just a few of many things that we pick up. We then have the fiber types that are large myelinated fibers that we typically view as involved in normal low threshold tactile sensation. <clears throat> These fibers out here in the epidermis are embedded among keratinocytes. And Dr. Albrecht will be dealing with discoveries that the keratinocytes themselves have neural properties, both uh, in the inhibitory and excitatory realm. My focus is going to be over on this part of the biology, where there is extensive sensory innervation involved with the microvasculature of the skin, both out in the capillary networks and down here in the resistance vessels in the deep dermis, the arterioles, and what are called arteriovenule shunts, which are bypasses. Okay, and that's going to be my main emphasis. <clears throat> what we can tell by looking at a holistic view of the biopsy, all the parts, epidermal endings, sweat glands, okay, hair follicles, blood vessels, is we're looking at an integrative structure. Okay, it's all involved in normal sensation. There are many elements of it involved 
and potential pain mechanisms. So it's the innervation, the vasculature, and other intrinsic components. And we know from work we've done in developmental biology that when we interfere with a particular molecule needed for normal development, there's a cascade of changes that occur over this whole matrix of tissue. So it's all cross-talking with each other. Okay, <clears throat> now coming back to the small fibers out in the epidermis and an emphasis on these fibers when we're talking about small fiber neuropathy, the main place that skin biopsies have been used is to assess the fiber density out here in the epidermis. And what really took off in this field was a highly unexpected observation that when we look at a chronic pain condition such as PHN from the painful side versus the control side, while we always assume that these small fibers in the epidermis were the likely source of chronic pain problems, they were actually reduced in the chronic pain conditions. We had a paradox here. And this phenomenon of reduced endings is pretty well established now over a wide range of uh, chronic pain conditions. Okay, diabetic neuropathy, complex regional pain syndrome, okay, post-herpetic neuralgia, and others. And so one of the beliefs is something about why, why is that paradox? What's, what's, what's explaining that? And the physiological evidence is that it's the remaining fibers that physiologically have been shown to be hyperexcitable or spontaneously active. So while there are fewer fibers, okay, something has, if you will, sensitized or is creating an excessive activity. All right, <clears throat> one of the ideas is maybe we could promote reinnervation of the skin, all right, <clears throat> and that could, uh, could provide benefit. And it's also known that if you denervate a central system neur neuron that receives input, that it too will become hyperexcitable. So there's a rationale that something may be going on peripherally with these fibers in themselves, but by denervation centrally, you're setting up the central nervous system to become hyperactive. <clears throat> okay, but while that is fascinating, more and more we're beginning to recognize that there are exceptions to the rule, and in particular, one of the things we see is here are some PHN patients. Now, there's your left and right side densities in the epidermis, okay, over a whole bunch of control subjects. And here's the lost innervation in the pain side compared to the control. But we have an exception to the rule. Here's a patient with an extremely intense post-herpetic neuralgia, and he's got plenty of fibers out there in the epidermis. Most recently, we have discovered that in human diabetics, if you look across the population who have neuropathy with pain compared to those without pain, both groups have an equal sensory loss. So here we have reduction of fibers, but in a condition that's not manifesting chronic pain. So the epidermal fiber story itself right, is very interesting, but it's not a end-all in terms of identifying a potential pain patient and, a, and in itself a mechanism of pain. I'm going to shift now out to the, to, the, to the vasculature, which is the main part of my talk. And <clears throat> what I'm going to bring to your attention is not only are these fibers out to the epidermis multimolecular, 
right, and have a mixed varieties of neurochemical properties, but it's been badly overlooked that down on the resistance vessels in the skin and other microvascular fields, other tissues, that there is a very dense innervation on these vessels that has mostly been regarded in the vascular biology literature as supplied by sympathetic innervation. Okay, it's noradrenergic, co-expressing another constrictor molecule called NPY. So we use NPY as a biomarker for these sympathetic fibers. And they're vasoconstrictive. Now they're known to be parasympathetic vasodilators with cerebral vessels, all right? But out in the periphery, vasodilatation has been viewed for a long time in vascular biology as a passive event when you reduce sympathetic output. What has been ignored is there's an extremely dense sensory innervation that accompanies the arterioles. And these sensory fibers express CGRP, which is a vasodilatory molecule. Now it's interesting because CGRP can be released centrally for neurotransmission up pain pathways, but sensory fibers play a motor role out in the periphery where local release of the CGRP promotes vasodilatation. And this whole area of these fibers has been virtually ignored in vascular biology, let alone what their implication is for potential pain conditions. Okay, <clears throat> now one thing we've also discovered is that they too come in several varieties. There's A-delta, there's C-fibers, and they have multi-molecular properties. So these things are doing quite complex stuff down here on the arterioles, and we've seen ASIC channels in them, trip channels for, for capsaicin down on a blood vessel. What the heck is that all about? So we know they're multi-molecular too. And we had a study, it was a particularly strange, interesting study, okay, by um, David Bauscher, who pioneered work on congenital absence of pain, a rare condition, which is terrible because these people become horribly mutilated. But he had a weird patient. And the patient was referred to him for excessive sweating, okay? And when he interviewed this guy in his 30s and high functioning, he found that all of his thresholds were increased, pain thresholds, okay, normal tactile thresholds, two standard deviations or more above normal. The guy had broken a leg and didn't know it, all right? And, but this guy could manipulate objects perfectly fine. All right, could detect thermal differences, textural differences, and so forth. And so we got extensive biopsies from this young man. And what was fascinating is everything you see over here was missing. He didn't have any of his low threshold mechanoreceptors. These fibers out here, the epidermis and up in the epidermis were all missing, but he had all of his vascular afferents. All right, and we had noted before that when you tracked an arteriole, they were innervated by small nerves at intervals, which suggested to us that the vasculature also had a high-resolution sensory system to it. And in order for this guy 
to extract tactile information, which we assume he was doing off of his vascular afferents through their various molecular properties. And that was his norm of perception, which was pretty good 90% of the time, all right, that he was relying on input off his vascular afferents. And to do that, it has to be a high resolution system. So part of a hypothesis we're driving towards is that there's a high resolution sensory vascular system here, which is much a player in our norms of perception and that can emerge in chronic pain conditions as a problem too. And this brings us over to then some assessments of the vessels and other chronic pain conditions. And this are from some patients with complex regional pain syndrome. And in these patients, what's very interesting here is there were three of them involved in this, looking at the hands and the feet. And we biopsy from hands and feet because it has a particularly high density of vascular structures. And the importance of that is something I'll come back to in some of our discoveries in fibromyalgia, okay? <clears throat> but one thing that was interesting here in our CRPS patients is that's a normal vessel with the red being the sympathetic and the green being the sensory component. But what was missing is that these people didn't have the sensory component. The sympathetics were there. The sensory had dropped out. And one of the features here of your CRPS patients are discoloration and some pseudomotor problems that are going on in the skin as well. Okay, there was something I forgot to mention that I want to go back to in this panel. And I wanna point out here at this convergence of the sensory and the sympathetic fibers on an arteriole, that it turns out that the sensory fibers express a noradrenaline receptor, the alpha-2C, which is known to inhibit the release of CGRP. So what we're looking at is a site of convergence of sensory and sympathetic fibers where the sympathetic fibers may act to vasoconstrict a vessel directly by acting on smooth muscle, but also by blocking the activity, the dilatory activity, of the sensory fibers. So there's a cross talk here. At this point, we haven't seen evidence that it goes the other way. So I need to get that in there. So now we come over to fibromyalgia. And what drove the study I'm about to talk to here is we seized upon this convergence of sensory and sympathetic fibers at the vasculature as a potential other place where SNRIs may have their impact on fibromyalgia patients. And so in an investigator-initiated award, this proposal to Endo and Forrest, who already had approved drugs for treating fibromyalgia, we investigated cohorts, yes, I'm sorry, Lily and, uh, and Forrest, we investigated cohorts of female patients with fibromyalgia against controls looking at the innervation of the vasculature in the palm of the hand. Now the palm of the hand is a tender area. Yeah. Right. 
And one thing that I think made this study a success is you could imagine one difficulty doing this is so many of the fibromyalgia patients have comorbidities. To try to rule that out, okay, is, is a very tough project, and our, our clinical collaborators, I think, did a great job in pulling that together. And so here's what we found. <clears throat> and uh, over here, we're looking at a battery of age-matched female patients, a biopsy from the hypothenar part of the skin. And the white you see is the perimeter of innervation around arterioles and arterial venule shunts. These are our age-matched fibromyalgia patients. And you can look at here at the excessive amount of innervation that's around these vessels, all right? <clears throat> and we're able to quantify this and what we're looking at when we look at the total innervation all right, around these vessels, comparing these two groups, is that the significance of the pathology that we picked up here was as low as 0 0.0001 all right, in what turned out successful biopsies from 16 fibromyalgia patients and 18 controls. Now, in doing the biopsies, you get a vascular structure from the palm of the hand and about 75% of the biopsies. So there were other patients enrolled that we had nothing to analyze. What was important about this and quite fascinating is it impacted the shunt alone, this part right there. And even though the arterioles have a similar but lesser mix of sensory and sympathetic fibers, that was not affected. And we did a further breakdown now of the multi-molecular properties of this innervation. And what we found is the proportion was skewed towards the direction of excessive sensory fibers over sympathetic. Now, both were increased, but it was the sensory that was especially increased. So our hypothesis here is that we've had, for some reason, an excessive amount of the sensory fibers on these vessels, which means that the deficit or the proportionate deficit of the sympathetic is unable to normally sustain the inhibitory control over the sensory fibers. And this would be one rationale to explain why the SNRI allowing the persistence of neuroadrenaline to act on the sensory fibers may have its benefit. Okay, fine. So what relevance does that have to a systemic-wide problem? Okay, and before I go there, I just wanted to show you a scatter plot of our patients. And this is the age of them here. And this is the amount of the innervation around these shunts. And so you can see that among all of our patients there's the fibromyalgias. And there's only a couple of them who were down in the range of the normal. So it was quite a robust pathology. And this is also the separation in terms of the proportion of the sympathetic and sensory innervation. All right. So we were looking at how we're going to talk about this and how to discuss it. And uh, that led us to delve into the vascular literature. And here was the surprise that we found. <coughs> And most of us do not appreciate how much blood supply there is to the skin. Under normal conditions, 80% of the blood supply in microvascular fields, that's not aorta and so forth, is to the skin. 
80%. 60% of that is to the hands and the feet. Why so much? Because what we're looking at is the hands and feet and these shunts play a critical role in thermoregulation because we can vary our skin temperature enormously to conserve or dissipate heat by adjusting blood flow out to the, out to the hands and feet, reducing it under cold conditions, increasing it under warm conditions. The situation that happens here is when you begin to exercise, curiously, the blood flow to the hands and feet is reduced and the skin temperature drops. Because what happens is we shunt blood from the hands and feet and divert it over to the skeletal muscle. Okay? Well, now you've got a problem. When you continue to exercise, you're going to have a thermal buildup. So now what are you going to do? And the vascular biology has shown that the system reverses again to dissipate heat. But at that point, you've moved to anaerobic metabolism. All right. And so there, there's evidence that a part of the problem in fibromyalgia is an evidence of elevated lactic acid okay, on the musculature. So what we would like to hypothesize is why this might seem like a small thing. The potential impact on regulating normal thermal and metabolic blood flow demands is compromised in these patients. And that's a theory. Okay, It's our speculation on why it could have a much more widespread problem. All right. <clears throat> In ending this session, I just wanted to touch briefly on some most recent findings that we had, which pertains to another discovery about the vascular innervation to these vessels in that both of the sympathetic and the sensory fibers express one of the sodium, the voltage-gated sodium channels, NAV 1.7, which is a major target for um, <clears throat> therapeutic approaches, largely stemming from a channelopathy mutation in some erythromyalgia patients where the NAV 1.7 channel becomes hyperactive. It's a gain-of-function mutation. Now, an issue that you have in the erythromyalgia patients is a reddening and a heating of the hands and feet. All right. <clears throat> the surprise is if you look at the mutated form of the NAV17, it has an opposite function on the sensory and the sympathetic fibers. Okay, the activity is increased, or rather, decreased, increased in the sensory fibers, but it becomes inhibitory on the sympathetic fibers. Same mutation, but an opposite outcome on the two fiber sets, which leads us to hypothesize that under this mutation, you're now getting an exaggeration of the vasodilatory mechanism and an exaggeration of the counterconstrictive mechanism, which is what's going to lead to the increased flow blood into the skin and the heightened activity in the fibers, the sensory fibers in the hands and feet. So that's new with Steve Waxman and is a potential other place where the vasculature may be a player in, uh, in some forms of erythromyalgia. So I'll hand off now to Dr. Arbrick. Um, what we're looking at in the, in the vascular innervation sensory story all right, is that 
we've picked up this convergence of the sensory and sympathetic and potential interactive mechanisms. All right, that there are a number of small fiber neuropathies uh, that may be involved impacting this innervation. And um, in the one case in the fibromyalgia, the punch biopsy may become a very valuable tool for definitively identifying a patient against some other things. We have not seen this pathology in other chronic pain conditions with the exception of a few um, patients with post-traumatic stress disorder. Okay. So I'll leave it at the, that and hand off to Dr. Albrecht. Hello. Uh, thank you all for coming today. I'd like to thank the organizers and Dr. Argoff for putting yeah. this together. Um, you know, the title of this today is Why Skin Matters, and really the truth is skin, although it's a barrier that you're all very well aware of, uh, by far it's your largest sensory organ. So why skin matters when we talk about pain is, is pretty obvious. It, it is your largest sensory organ. As Dr. Rice pointed out, it's also a highly innervated structure. Um, I'm going to break a little bit from what Dr. Rice talked about with vasculature. I'm going to go back to some of the earlier stuff he talked about on epidermal innervation, particularly small fiber innervation. Uh, many of the clinicians in the room will know of small fiber neuropathy and the way we that now are some companies ourselves. You can get a biopsy and you can look particularly, uh, sorry, I don't have a pointer, I'll use the mouse. As Dr. Rice pointed out, these PGP positive fibers in the epidermis, they're called intraepidermal nerve fibers. And we see a lot of chronic pain conditions where we've lost these fibers. And the, and the paradox or the conundrum, as Dr. Rice points out, is that these are supposed to be the fibers that mediate nociceptive pain and, and those fibers that, that sort of bring the pain pathway into your brain where you can recognize that you have pain. And when we have chronic pain patients, you know, it might be a logical guess that maybe these fibers are increased or there's more fibers. In fact, what we find is that there's actually a decrement of these fibers, and it's across many pain conditions, as Dr. Rice points out. Um, that's not the end-all story, though. We know there have been a lot of groups who have now tried to regrow those fibers. There's some stuff I'll talk about here uh, with some of our own basic research where we've shown that the fibers can regrow, and the, in this case, the animal studies still show hyperalgesia and allodynia. So we know that the fiber loss is clearly part of the pain problem, but we're also very well aware that it's not the, the entirety part of this. Uh, skin, again, as Dr. Rice pointed out, is a very, very complex organ. Largest organ, largest sensory organ. It's an endocrine organ. It's an immune organ. It's a sensory organ. We're going to just basically touch on the innervation and the the idea that this interaction. Uh, Dr. Glick gave a great talk today about the pathophysiology, and he talked about the transduction of stimuli, and he he kept focusing on the transduction. However, in my mind, he missed a main point, which is that stimuli don't impact only those small fibers, it impacts the cells that those small fibers are embedded in. In this case, I'm going to talk about keratinocytes. Dr. Rice talked a little bit about the vasculature. So again, just as a quick review for, for everybody in the room, we now know that the epidermis, which if you remember from your medical training, nervous system is an invagination of your ectoderm. It invaginates from the outside and forms in, you form a central nervous system. Pieces break off to form the peripheral nervous system. And what we see is the peripheral nervous system reaches back out and actually talks to the same tissue that it developmentally was. And so we see a lot of the same chemicals that are neural chemicals expressed in keratinocytes because they're neurally derived or they're, they're, they're cells that are derived from the same substances that gives rise to the nervous system. So again, we've talked about this uh, uh, quite a lot today. I also want to mention one thing that I know that we're in Las Vegas and nothing is supposed to leave Las Vegas. Take this information home with you, okay? Um, 
we know that it's, it's really uh, filled with these C fibers and A delta fibers. As Dr. Rice points out, the epidermis is one of the richest innervated tissues in your body. And it's really only been maybe 20 or 30 years that it's really been uh, known now definitively that we have these small fibers in the epidermis. It was pro proposed back in the 1800s by a German scientist that they found them in fish, and he said it's probably true in humans, but it took almost 100 years before we had evidence to prove that. Now we know they're there. Now we know they're lost. Um, we know they're unencapsulated. We know all of this. We also know that if you look at larger fibers like a Meissner or a, a Pacinian or a Merkel, if you look at any of the neurophysiology of how those large fibers work, they're all associated with an accessory cell. They all have a Merkel cell or they have an, a, a capsule that's associated with it. The free nerve endings in the epidermis are really just defined as free nerve endings. They don't have any cells associated with them. However, they're embedded in an enormous field of keratinocytes. So that's really what started our investigations. We started working through keratinocytes. The first thing I want to talk about is epidermal innervation and signaling between the keratinocytes and the free nerve endings that really up until last year had been supposition. All the players are there, they all seem to be in the right neighborhood, but we didn't have that definitive evidence as to the fact that they're playing together. And that's here now, and I'll go through some of the history. First thing I want to talk about is the actual epidermal innervation. This is a great paper that came out in 2005 with Mark Zilko's group. Mark does a lot of great molecular uh, transgenic models, and he's able to mark different, different fibers. And clearly, we've now shown that there's at least two sets of fibers that go into the epidermis. One set has the peptide, as Dr. Rice talked about, the CGRP. One set doesn't. And we know that there's molecular diversity amongst the two sets, not only with the peptide, but also with the expression of, uh, of numerous other small channels, GPCR channels, ion channels, uh, uh, other modulators of neural function. So we, we're clearly aware that, that not only are the nerves important that go into the epidermis, but the types of nerves are also important. And as Dr. Rice points out, there isn't any one nerve that's only responsive to one thing. They're all multimodal. You have, you have nerve fibers that are responsive to thermal and chemical. They can also be responsible to pressure or, or mechanical sense. So we know they're multimodal. We know that they respond to multiple signals. We know that they are supposedly responsible for your nociceptive activity. However, um, as a trained neuroscientist, I have to impinge upon all of you to recognize those fibers do not sit there and wait for the day that you step on attack to say, oh, now I'm going to fire for you. There's a very, very basic principle in neuroscience that tells you the only way to create a fidelic synapse, something that when it fires, it goes like this, is to fire, is to constantly be active. As soon as that synapse doesn't, isn't active anymore, it doesn't have the fidelity to send that signal. None of you step on tacks or sit on hot things on the daily, but the second that you do, that synapse is extraordinarily fidelic. It goes right to your brain, and you go, ow, there's a tack there. We have to appreciate that that fiber has to be firing in order to maintain that. We don't really know what they're doing yet, and I, and I have to put that out there for you because the idea of a silent nociceptor or the idea of a fiber just laying around first developing and laying around and being nothing there for those few times that you actually experience a nociceptive stimuli doesn't make a lot of sense. So there's still a lot of work to do with, with what's really going on with these small fibers. So on to keratinocytes then. I don't want to belabor the point too much with this. We now are convinced, or we now know these fibers, I, I altered this drawing a little bit, these intraepidermal nerve fibers terminate right out into the keratinocytes. And we know from every textbook you've ever looked at that there's these 
modulators that are released in the periphery that drive these fibers. Every book tells you there's an injury, there's a lesion, there's a cut, and it's the same usual suspects. It's histamine, it's bradykinin, it's prostaglandin, it's proton, it's, it's uh, ATP. No one ever tells you really where they're coming from. We know now they're coming from keratinocytes largely. We know there's other cells as well. Uh, keratinocytes are also known to have been known for years and years in the immunology world to be large producers of, of uh, cytokines, pro-inflammatory cytokines, for example. So the keratinocytes are deeply involved with signaling right to these fibers. So I want to go through a little bit of history of how we've come to where we are today to know this. So it was back in 2002 that McCleskey's group showed that uh, cytosol from, from a keratinocyte can directly stimulate an, a, a nerve. So it was that study that really gave the idea that there's something in the cytosol of, of a keratinocyte that can drive a small fiber. They were able to go back and show that it was ATP. Uh, a little while later, a couple years later, same year, uh, Pataputin's group then showed that the TRIPS channels are also expressing keratinocytes. So these are some of the first early evidence that these are things that were neural related. They're showing up in keratinocytes. Uh, then a study that uh, Dr. Argoff alluded to in 2003 from our group uh, went ahead and showed that, in fact, keratinocytes have an opioid in them. They are richly laden with beta-endorphin. Uh, and in this study, we, we showed that uh, through the use of, of certain ET1 inhibitors, we can, we can get the uh, beta-endorphin to express. We went on to show then for the CB2 cannabinoid receptor, uh, we can use the, in, I didn't mention here, in this case it was ETA and ETB, which are endothelial receptors. The ETB receptor, which is expressed also in the keratinocytes, in the same layer where the beta endorphin is, we can stimulate ETB receptor and we can get beta endorphin release. We went on to do a, a study with uh, Philip Malin and, and the group out at, at Arizona and showed that the cannabinoid 2 receptor, also expressed in keratinocytes, also expressed at the same layer where the beta endorphin is, stimulate a, a cannabinoid 2 receptor, you get beta endorphin release of the skin. So uh, I, I, would, I would disagree a little bit. I have to just say this with Dr. Glick's point this morning uh, when he mentioned that, did you know about mu opioid and mu opioid in the skin, but he didn't think it had anything to do with disease conditions. I would ask any of you, if you've ever experienced anybody who's an opioid addict, when they start coming off the opioids, one of the first things they'll tell you is their skin feels crawly and crinkly and crawly their opioid system in their skin is screwed up. It's clearly the opioids will affect the opioids in the skin, and we have evidence of that too in animals. Um, in this pain, the paper that we did in 2006 with CRPS, again, this is showing some of the published work where we, we saw, again, this decrement in small fiber. This was plate 15 that got left out of the 2006 manuscript because we weren't 100% convinced of what we were seeing at the time. However, as you can see, ASICS, ETA, the alpha-2 adrenergic, uh, the purinergic receptor, when we looked in CRPS conditions, we saw increases in these in the skin themselves. And we were convinced of what we saw, but we weren't convinced enough to publish it at the time. So this still remains as unpublished data in the CRPS, but that plate was put together in 2006. Uh, a couple years later, then now we have other transient receptor potential channels, TRIP-A1, which is a mechanoreceptor. Another group showed again TRIP-V1. Now clearly we have trip, a, a class of TRIP-Vs, V3, V4, V1, all expressed in keratinocytes. These are all molecules that up until this point had been thought to be largely expressed in the small fibers only, and that the small fibers were the ones that responded directly to the stimulus. Not so. Uh, in, uh, again, here we now show that you can take keratinocytes in culture, you can stimulate with a TRIP-A1 or a TRIP-V1 
agonist and you can get prostaglandin uh, and leukotriene expression, which means that you can stimulate these cells and they release pro-inflammatory cytokines or they release chemical mediators of nociception. Uh, in this uh, DENDA paper, uh, I think this was 2007, he went so far as now to come out and just say this, that look, it really looks like here, epidermal keratinocytes are the forefront of the sensory system. He's got a traditional view, here's your stimulus, here's your free nerve ending, as that's what really mediates the stimulus. But now what looks like is the stimulus is affecting the keratinocytes, and the keratinocytes are signaling to the, epiderm or, or signaling to the small fiber. Uh, in another paper uh, in 2008 with our group and Steve Waxman's group again, we now showed that there are uh, voltage-gated sodium channels in the keratinocytes. And this was a hard sell to Dr. Waxman. Dr. Waxman is one of the world-renowned leaders in, in sodium channels. Uh, we saw this in humans. We talked to Steve and said, Steve, we think we saw voltage-gated sodium channels in keratinocytes. He poo-pooed the idea and said, there's no way. What would they be doing there? called us about two years later and said we were doing rodent studies, you'll never guess what we found. So sure enough, voltage-gated sodium channels, we did PCR, we did immunochemistry. I put a little red arrow here about the NAV16 because I'm gonna come back to that later with a recent study that we did. Uh, again here, this is now uh, more signaling through pathology. You can see how NAV16 is clearly increased. In this case, uh, we have THN study patients uh, versus control patients. Uh, and this, again, is the CRPS. You can see NAV17 is increased. You can also see NAV16 is increased. So again, we're now finding that these increases in certain molecules in keratinocytes, much like the loss of fibers, is happening across multiple disease conditions. Uh, in 2008, Dr. Rice and I wrote a nice review paper. This is sort of the beginnings of the model of what we're seeing here. We reproduced the CB2 and beta endorphin story, the ETB and the CB2 story, and the idea that keratinocytes are signaling to these small fibers. Uh, another paper in 2009, I believe, uh, showing now a, a multitude of expressing of, of purinergic receptors, so ATP receptors, uh, P2X and P2Y, the TRIP channels, which are thermal responsive channels and also responsive to the chemical capsaicin, TRIP-V1, um, as well as the NAV channels, as well as CGRP, all being expressed in various concentrations in the keratinocytes themselves, as well as the small fibers. Uh, we did another study with Travis Barr, one of our graduate students, showing how ATP could be released from keratinocytes. We showed uh, several mechanisms. He, came, he did a lot of studies on his graduate work and showed that it's a connexin hemichannel that allows ATP to be released from these keratinocytes. So there's now a mechanism where ATP can be readily released from keratinocytes. We know ATP will signal to the, to the small fibers. Um, in another study we did where we looked at CGRP, another one of our favorite uh, peptides, we know it plays a major role in vascularization. We know it plays a role in pain. We also know as an efferent uh, transducer, it's increased in the keratinocytes themselves. So in this case, we have PHN, we see an increase. Uh, and we also show again uh, in CRPS, we see this increase in the hypothenar skin. Uh, so we did a little bit of a Injury modeling, this is, this is rodent work where we did the CCI, it's a chronic constriction of the, of the sciatic nerve, and we also did a spinal nerve ligation, which is up near the dorsal root, and we ligate the nerve. Uh, and you can see in both of these cases, if you, if you look across here at the PGP in green, the fibers are lost. This is what you'd expect. We see this in chronic pain conditions. What we saw in this case with CGRP is a dramatic upregulation uh, in the keratinocytes during the injury. And what I wanted to point out to you is if you notice at 60 days, these animals are still very hyperalgesic. Uh, if you notice at 60 days, we're starting to see a return of the epidermal innervation. 
but the hyperalgesia isn't going away. The thing that isn't changing is the keratinocyte chemistry is still skewed in these animals. So we've continued to zoom in on this. Uh, again, CB1, you can see in some of these, uh, this is again in the SNL work, we saw a loss of cannabinoid 1, we saw a loss of ETA, we saw a loss of CB2, we know is tied to the beta endorphin story, we know we lost ETB, which is tied to the beta endorphin story, and we saw changes in trip V1. This is all from nerve injury, very much proximal to what's going on out in the skin. So we know now that nerve injury proximally can skew the epidermis. Uh, we went one step further then and we took these cells into culture. Keratinocytes in a monolayer culture don't act like normal keratinocytes. So you have to grow them at the air interface and create a three-dimensional structure. And lo and behold, when you grow keratinocytes at the three-dimensional structure, you get a nice sort of epidermal patterning where there's a basal layer, there's a spinosal layer, there's a granulosum layer, and the cells slough off like Dr. Argoff asked you to do today. We can show in that culture system that if we put test substances such as CFA, which is an in vivo test for um, hyperalgesia and pain, uh, or if we give capsaicin, we can change the chemistry of those keratinocytes directly. Again, another step showing that the keratinocytes are directly responsible or directly responsive to these types of stimuli. I have to note that that was some funding I got from New York State. Um, and then this is the paper. There's this paper. There's another paper I don't mention here um, from uh, uh, who did the other paper? Um, I'm forgetting uh, who's in Baltimore for us. Mike Katerina. Mike Katerina did another paper very similar to this. This is the definitive paper now that we've been waiting on for the last 10 years or so, where we knew all the players are there, they're all in the pool, they're all swimming together, but we didn't know that they talked to each other. So here finally, uh, in this pa paper, Dr. Albers did optogenetics, and they optogenetically transfected only the keratinocytes, and then they shined light on the animal, and they showed direct nociceptive stimulation. And they can not only just nociceptors and small fibers, they also showed evidence of large fiber activation. So this was really the evidence we'd been looking for to prove that indeed keratinocytes signal directly to these small fibers. Uh, and again, we now know, as, as Dr. Glick pointed out this morning in a really nice slide, there are, a, uh, there are a number of modulators and mediators that are expressed in keratinocytes that are traditionally thought of as neural mediators that are in keratinocytes they are signaling to the small fibers. What we've come up with, though, is now the idea that they're not just all out there, that this stratified epidermis that we know from um, basic biology of, of the barrier where there's a basal layer, there's a middle spinosum layer, and an outer granulosum layer, that the, the expression of various molecules is differentiated across that level. So for example, ETA and ETB, which I don't see over here, if it's on here, are expressed in different levels. Here's ETB. You can see ETB is up in these upper granulosum and, and uh, spinosum layers. ETA remains basalis. If you look at the cannabinoid receptors, I think maybe these aren't on here. There's CB1 and CB2. You can see there's a differential expression. These are different receptors for the same ligand. The receptors often act differently, but in the case of ETA and ETB, endothelin is the ligand. ETA uh, mediates what appears to be a very algesic, painful cascade. ETB, as we showed earlier, is an analgesic cascade, ties into the beta endorphin pathway. So we know that this epidermis is, a, is an integrating signaling structure. It, it, it isn't just a passive sort of sponge, here's the signal. It integrates the signal. Um, and, and sort of, again, I keep going back to Dr. Glick's point of his four things. Modulation is a huge thing with pain. We all know about modulation in the dorsal horn. 
uh, I would suggest to you that your modulation of nociceptive or any stimuli is happening right at the level of the skin. You're getting a, a, a modulation of the signal right there. So this brings us, this brings us back to this signal, this here, where again, when I come back to this picture to show you these fibers out here embedded in this rich keratinocyte field, and we know that there are algesic mechanisms, we know that there's analgesic mechanisms, and we know that there's modulatory mechanisms right out in the keratinocytes. Molecules are there, we know the molecules signal to the, to the fiber, and we get this type of a, of a diagram, and this diagram is even about three years old or four years old, so it's, it's even outdated at this, at this level. You can see we have two types of fibers, a peptidergic fiber and a non-peptidergic fiber. I have ATP on here, we have the cannabinoids on here, we have the CGRP on here. Uh, we don't have any of the voltage-gated sodium channels on here yet. This is a very, very complex story. Uh, we really think that this get, does not get enough airplay. Everybody's focused on central sensitization. Everybody's focused on things that change in the central system. I'm gonna, uh, uh, I have a couple more slides I want to talk about this study, and then I want to leave you with one other point. This is a, a recent study that we just did that's very exciting to us. Um, again, this is looking now at, at diabetic neuropathy, and we, we had two types of diabetic neuropathy. We had the non-painful group, we had the painful group. And as Dr. Rice pointed out before, when we looked at epidermal innervation, you can see that the controls compared to both groups, painful and non-painful, have a much higher innervation. Unfortunately, these are the same. So clearly the difference between non-painful and painful diabetic is not in the epidermal innervation. Uh, we did a lidocaine patch and we showed that after four weeks of lidocaine patch in the diabetic neuropathy patients, the epidermal innervation didn't return. So that basically leads that when you have a patient who goes on diabetic or has diabetic neuropathy, goes on the lidocaine patch and gets benefit from the patch, it's not because the fibers regrew. What we were, and that's what this PGP in green is showing, that we saw this decrement and that post-lidoderm, there's still no regrowth of the fibers. However, what we were able to show when we looked at keratinocyte expression, is that in the painful group compared to, control, compared to their post and the, the non-painful in the control, there was an increase in the NAV17 and keratinocyte expression. There was also a slight increase in the CGRP expression in the painful but not the non-painful. Um, and this was only just, I think I even wrote, it literally got to 0.05. So that's a close one there. But we clearly know that there's changes in the painful skin that are different than the changes in the non-painful skin. Uh, and what we then went on to find out or look through is the keratinocyte expression of NAV16. You can see that in the pre-group where there were pain, there was a high expression of NAV16 compared to the non-pain group and compared to the control group. Uh, after lidocaine patch of four weeks, you can see that it brought down the expression of the NAV16 in keratinocytes back to a normal level. We went back uh, post hoc then, and we looked at all of the cohort that we had through, and again, this was a study that Dr. Argoff was involved with, and so the patients had pain diaries. We did sensory testing. We did quantitative sensory batteries, um, neuropathic pain score. We did the lower limb score. Um, and we utilized all of those um, subjective measures to come back and say, now, of our patient population, how many were responders versus those that didn't respond? Using those criteria to pull the responders out of the group from the non-responders, we were able to show this graph, which really had us kind of excited about this that the pre-dose NAV16 expression in keratinocytes actually predicted those patients that were going to respond to the patch. So getting back to what Dr. Rice sort of mentioned, this could become, and Dr. Argoff mentioned, skin biopsy could become a way to 
help diagnose your patient, even for the subtleties, to suggest is this a patient who may respond to this therapy. In this case, we did create a predictor, a NAV16 pre-treatment pre biopsy that showed it's a predictor for the responders. Uh, so again, you guys can all read these on your slides. I don't want to take too much time. But I also want to just leave before Dr. Argoff gets on again with the simple idea of um, chronic pain and how chronic pain happens in the nervous system. Two things I want to leave you with. Neuroplasticity has, and central sensitization is the running dogma. You get an injury. Um, your injury doesn't heal right. Somehow the nervous system makes changes, a plastic change, and you get left with chronic pain. Now, I'm going to ask you guys two simple questions. Chronic pain, is it a problem with young people or is it a problem with old people? Well, both, but chronic pain is usually a condition for older people, correct? Young people get an injury and they can usually work their way out of it, okay? If plasticity is the big problem in chronic pain, then the old dogma of you can't teach an old dog new tricks really sticks. We know from neuroscience that the older your nervous system gets, the less plastic your nervous system is. If plasticity were really the problem in chronic pain, those graphs would look like this with age, but they don't. They look like this. So what we see is with age, plasticity of your nervous system actually decreases. With age, chronic pain seems to go up. So we kind of take it on the other side, and we say that your nervous system works by pattern and predictability. From the day you were set up, everything is pattern and predictability. Here's the pattern, here's the prediction. If it matches like this, how much do you think about that? How much does your body attend to that? It doesn't. It doesn't even pay attention to it. This is what you expect. This is what happens. You attend to that immediately. And we look at chronic pain as really a problem of not having plasticity to work your way out of a problem. So take that home with you from Las Vegas. This is why topicals are important. So on to Dr. Arnoff. So I have the most horrible job of finishing with the most boring stuff in the world. Perfect. Because no, really, because really the, we were blown away. And again, we, we went to the manufacturer of, of the lidocaine patch and basically said, this is what we want to do. We want this group, that group. Well, and they said, OK. They funded it exactly as we wanted it to be. Um, and we were very fortunate. And we found, what was it, 80% predictability based upon this is, in a, this is going to be published. Okay, um, So that's really exciting. Where do you have that? In pan and and it's, a tip, it's, a tip, it's a tip of the iceberg. We have a long way to go. But this is what we have now, <laughs> okay? And I'll try to make a couple of interesting points and leave some time for questions and answers. We do have topical therapies available. I hope that, if anything, um, the, the importance of, of why we need to continue to develop topical therapies and why those that we have work and why they may be able to be better utilized um, has been uh, emphasized by my colleagues' presentations. But we do have diclofenac, which is a non-steroidal, commercially available in several formulations. There are over-the-counter, aspirin, NSAID, not other non-steroidals, menthol. Menthol is a really interesting, uh, it activates TRYP-M8 receptors. Um, and that there are papers to show that endogenous opioid expression increases naturally when TRYP-M8 is turned on. It's an Italian paper that suggested that. So this is interesting, right? Are we actively encouraging endogenous opioids when we use Bengay. That's what this paper suggested. So again, it's not, why are these things happening? And this is where we're starting to critically look at these things. Capsaicin, the over-the-counter stuff exists. The 8% capsaicin 
patch exists. There is a lotion in development that, for those of you, how many of you use the 8% capsaicin patch in your practices? It's a little bit, you know, it's an hour, it's a three-hour process if you do it per guidelines. The lotion that's been in development for a while is about a 15-minute application. See you later. Goodbye. Done. Easy to do. Um, the uh, local anesthetic that we, we, we know about, um, a lidocaine patch, there are now, there is now a generic version available. There are competing interests in developing new approaches to this. And we also have Emla cream, a eutectic mixture of local anesthetics, that's lidocaine, prilocaine cream. The tricyclic antidepressants, true or false? There is a commercially available, meaning FDA-approved, tricyclic antidepressant cream that is available for use. What? I've read What's it called? What is it? What's it for? Uh, so the answer is doxepin cream. The brand name is Zonalon cream. is FDA approved, not for pain, but for um, pruritus associated with eczema. Pruritus associated with eczema. But why is that important? Because um, potency-wise, amitriptyline and drugs like doxepin are far more potent local anesthetics than lidocaine. 50 times more potent amitriptyline to lidocaine. So there might be promise there in the future. With information that has been discovered by these gentlemen, perhaps opioid, topical opioids might have some um, benefit. And, and, and I will put it out there, for, again, compounded agents may have a role. We tried to get funding, remember that? <laughs> for a long time, and we were this close, to getting funding to, to take a, work with a topical company, a compounding company, and find out where's your drug, what's happening to your drug. What, what happens when people are successfully treated, as you say they are? You know, what happens to the skin? So that was important. So I, I, I'm going to go past these slides, I think, um, only because you're aware of these agents. Um, I, I just made, made this point. There has been efforts to study amitriptyline combined with ketamine in a number of different clinical trials, topical opioids. Here are several studies supporting, very small studies supporting its potential benefit, a lot more to do. Investigational uh, uh, agents, including, but the other interesting thing is botulinum toxin. Now, it's not a topically, it's, it, you think of botulinum toxin, what's the mechanism of action of botulinum toxin? Anybody? Neuroparalysis, absolutely not. It is absolutely more sensory neurotoxin than it is a motor neurotoxin. In fact, it interferes with CGRP, um, release, uh, glutamate release, substance P release, other relevant substances. CGRP is the most important neurotransmitter for not only certain types of pain but headache. And when we tr so so, uh, there are now increasing number of studies with various types of botulinum toxin showing that subcutaneous injections leads to analgesic benefit, not intramuscular. Injection. So that's something that's something to think about as well. So in conclusions, I hope that we have demonstrated, I know this has been a lot of important science here, um, that, that evaluation of skin may lead to improved diagnosis of various pain conditions. Let me just blow your mind for one more second. We just published um, that central post-stroke pain is associated with changes in skin. So... I mean, these are people who never had a problem with peripheral pain, who, as they develop what used to be called thalamic pain or central post-stroke pain, they develop changes within their skin. 
So that's important as well, to recognize and respect the connection. And instead of saying, oh, it's here, or I'm treating there, or I think Dan Claw and I are going to have fun tomorrow um, when we talk about peripheral versus central etiologies to chronic widespread pain. It's not just in, the system works by talking to each other. And what happens in the brain can affect the skin and vice versa. Um, the evaluation of the skin may lead to improved treatment by identifying subtypes. Well, this is where we started from. And so what we just showed is that perhaps we can start doing that in conditions like diabetic neuropathy and other areas. We have a lot more work to do, but this is really encouraging and fun. And of course, the skin itself can be the site of, of treatment of various chronic pain conditions. And we have only more improved, hopefully, topical analgesics to look forward to in the future. So with this in mind, um, thank you for your attention, and we'll be happy to answer any questions you might have.